My name is Daisha Clay. I'm the audio librarian here at Classical 91.7. While I'm a real librarian, I have a deep, dark secret. I know very little about classical music. I grew up listening to rock. And I know something about jazz. But when it comes to classical... But I really want to learn. So... Every week on this show, a classical music expert will give me a piece of classical music they think I should know, and then we'll discuss it. Come learn with me in the classical classroom. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the classical classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and joining me today all the way from a studio in Pasadena, California, through the miracle of technology is Peter Boyer. Peter is a Grammy-nominated composer and conductor. His Symphony No. 1, performed by the London Philharmonic Orchestra under Peter's direction, was recorded at Abbey Road Studios and was just released on Naxos. His work has been performed by more than 100 orchestras. He's active in the film industry, and he's worked on the music for many major films. Peter, welcome to the Classical Classroom. Thank you, Daisha. It's nice, nice to be here. So what are you going to be teaching me about today? Uh, today, I thought that I would speak about my Symphony Number no. 1, uh, which is the primary work from the recording that you just mentioned that was released on uh, Noxos Classics, uh, Noxos mm-hmm. of America, and uh, that will be the subject of our discussion. That That's very exciting. I, I was listening to this piece this morning, and um, my... I, I really like this scherzo particularly, so I'm excited about getting to that part. (laughs) Sure, absolutely. Well, I want to get to some of the music. What what should we um, listen to first? Well, so since it's a three-movement work, why don't we start at the beginning with the first movement? Ah, that's a great idea, the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) So the first movement actually begins in a fairly unusual way. Uh, Let me preface this just by saying that for this piece, for my first symphony, this was an unusual opportunity for me as a composer. I've composed quite a few commissioned works, meaning that I've been hired essentially to write a work for particular occasions with particular parameters. And I had been seeking for several years to find an opportunity to compose a purely instrumental symphony. And by purely instrumental, I mean not a symphony that was quote-unquote about something, not a programmatic work, not okay. a symphony about Mount Rushmore or you know, a, a symphony about, not a symphony about a particular thing, but okay. a symphony that um, is, the term is sometimes used, absolute music, which is a, I don't know, it's, it's not a perfect term, but it's, it's I've, distinguished. Yeah, I've heard that term before. A piece not about anything per se. They are about the notes themselves and the relationships of the notes to uh-huh. each other. So it's a purely instrumental composition. And in my particular case, I've had quite a few commissions that were about something. They were to celebrate something or they had a literary or historical impetus um, you know, for example, my piece Ellis Island, The Dream of America, which is, is my most performed work, one can tell just from the title what that piece is actually about, you know, early 20th yeah. century immigration to America. It's about Hawaii. <laughs> <That's exactly. laughs> um, having done many, many such things or, or done celebratory pieces, which I enjoy a great deal, you know, celebrating a particular occasion, mm-hmm. what I was seeking was an opportunity to compose a piece of music that would be big enough uh, to be called a symphony legitimately and Mm -hmm. to be a purely instrumental symphony more than anything 
as a personal challenge because I'd never had the opportunity to do that. And having composed, you know, well over a dozen different commissions for different orchestras, uh, some fairly big, some smaller, this was something that I thought, okay, I'm now of a certain age as a composer that I've been doing this a while, and it seems like a logical step for me to attempt to create a symphony. But the circumstances um, to get such a commission are not very common these days, and uh, eventually that that uh, set of circumstances did arise, and the Pasadena Symphony, which is uh, right here in the neighborhood in which I'm recording this uh, talk to you, mm-hmm. they commissioned this work for their 2012-13 season, and there were no strings attached, uh, no no particular occasion that had to be celebrated, mm-hmm. no particular parameters, only length. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that is really the the first thing that I that, had to think that about. That was sort of the the only thing that was was hemming you in creatively at all. So you were just wide open. As exactly. A, as a composer, you said it's called absolute music when it's not necessarily about anything. When, yes, when that's one term that, that's used. I wonder because I'm such a verbal person I write and when I when I have ideas they come out in words that is something that really fascinates me about composers like you and people who write absolute music how how does that happen as a creative person like how how does an idea a wordless idea come to you what what inspires you well that that's again a very good question and a very big question so in the case of this piece <laughs> Since I did not have, but by design, I did not have to try to capture any particular image in music. I did not have to write music that was associated with a particular historical event or any kind of imagery. It was just about music. So essentially, what what I allowed myself to do was to sit at the piano, which is generally how I begin, and to begin improvising and creating material. And for mm-hmm. me, I'm a very thematic composer. Um, my, my pieces are, by and large, driven by themes, the creation of themes and the development of themes and the interaction of themes. And so when I begin, I literally sit at the piano and and begin to improvise. Sometimes I do sit and actually just think and an idea will occur to me, but more often than not, there's something tactile about putting one's fingers on the keyboard. In the case of this piece, I actually had the luxury, uh, because of the time frame, to be able to sit and create quite a lot of thematic material and then say to myself, okay, what what does this material suggest to me? Where does it want to go? And sometimes the material will actually take on a kind of life of its own. And then my job as a composer is to craft it, is to arrange it into a form that is satisfying. And that's a very subjective thing. But generally, there's a process of whittling these themes down and expanding them, making them larger, making them smaller, making them interact until it feels right until it feels organically correct to me that it works and that it goes from point A to point B to point C all the way to point Z at the end in a way that it's convincing. And it's highly subjective, but generally if if that is true for me, then at the end of the process I can think that perhaps that will be true for you and for other listeners. Yeah, it'll and, translate. Uh, so, so in the case of this first movement, which I, which I called Prelude, and I didn't actually title it Prelude until I had completed the movement, um, oh. I decided to begin in an unusual way for me, and yet a way that um, that has a lot of musical precedent. And 
It actually is a uh, what's called a fugato or fugato, uh, F-U-G-A-T-O, since we're doing musical terms. Mm-hmm. And that is a fugue-like section within a movement that is not itself a fugue. When we think of a fugue, we think uh, of composers such as Bach, perhaps all others, but certainly uh, many others as well. And we think of, a, of an older kind of formal approach in which a uh, theme or subject is introduced and then a uh, counter-subject is introduced and, right. and there's a certain kind of contrapuntal uh, activity that is happening in the music. So as I understand it, a, a fugue is sort of like the, uh, the row, row, row your boat uh, <laughs> kind of. Um... So row, row, row your boat generally is a canon, which means that let's say you have three people singing row, row, row your boat in succession. Everybody's mm-hmm. actually singing it on the same pitch. And in a, mm-hmm. in a fugue or a frugato, the pitches change. And so yeah. the first entrance of the theme, in this case, the very first note of the piece is the note B. Mm-hmm. And when that theme is over, that has actually moved from the note B up to the note E. And then the next voice comes in on the note E, oh, and it okay. continues. Meanwhile, what was being played by the first voice now does something different underneath that second entrance of the theme. And so now you have two voices together. And the casual listener uh, certainly is not going to hear these relationships. But I think one will hear that there's a sense of movement from place to place. And it has, you know, despite my uh, efforts to be purely uh, absolute, it almost has a kind of narrative quality to it. Uh, but that's that's very subjective. But I think you can hear, <laughs> you can actually hear the movement from one pitch to the next to the next. And as each of these voices and themes enters, it's it's rising up and going to a higher place. All right, let's hear it. Go, producer Todd, go. <laughs> <laughs> Now here, you can hear that the second voice has entered, taking over from where the first left off, but now the second voice is playing new musical material underneath. And if you listen, you can hear the two voices hopefully in balance with each other. And now, get to the third statement, the cellos enter on the bottom, Now they're playing, they've started on the note A. Mm -hmm. Now we have three voices, again, hopefully balanced, but now the the primary voice is actually on the bottom, it's the cellos. And can you hear the two voices on top that are more active? But the big tune is in the cellos. And now we prepare for the fourth entrance. And now here, We have the tune on the top in octaves in the first violins, and we've had the basses enter on the bottom, and there's two voices in the middle. So there are four voices happening simultaneously. And yet it's somehow organized. (laughs) That is the hope. (laughs) And you can very easily hear that the main theme is on the top. It's the highest voice. Mm -hmm. And this is the final, the fifth entrance. And here, after we've had only strings, now I bring in winds. They're also playing the theme. And at this point, there are five separate voices happening simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And 
We know that this is a fugato or fugato because it doesn't proceed in the way that a fugue would because now it actually is going to lead to a climax and a fanfare. Uh-huh. Here. And in the trumpets, this is new material and it just sort of organically led to a fanfare one day and I said, well, I'm not going to fight it. We're going to have a fanfare. <laughs> so I could have called it fugue and fanfare, fugato and fanfare, but it's all part of the first movement. And now you can hear we've arrived at a climax And we hear the theme again with voices answering each other, and it's now moving twice as fast. And the music is marked più agitato, which means more agitated, and it's moving at a faster tempo. Più agitato? (laughs) Più agitato, more agitated. I'm going to name my next cat that. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) And what's happening here, hopefully, is that the music is developing, that the, the theme is developing, and there's new accompaniment, and here, rather dramatic new material, but it's all based on fragments of the theme that we heard initially. Right. And here I'm building up kind of pyramids of sound in the brass and the strings. And now this little three-note motive is, is based, again, on a little piece of the theme, what we call a fragment. Taking the theme, taking one little section of the theme, and now playing with that. Sort of like uh, John Williams uses. Yes. Star Wars. And others, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the only one I know is Star Wars. So <laughs> I assume that's the only one that exists. I love your description of your creative process, and you can really hear that in the music. I like how you said you, you know, you were sort of playing with this fugato. This yes, you're you're playing with that, and you and let it kind of build, and then it sort of just naturally moves to fanfare to climax. That's and you just kind of let that happen as a composer. I see. I see what you're saying about how you know you kind of let let the music sort of form itself. Yeah, and it's you know it's a very it's a very subjective and hard to describe process. But yeah, you know, the, the music I struggled that, with describing it just then. <laughs> <laughs> the music that you know that that I think any of us create as composers. I mean, it, it is a product of the 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 subconscious mind working and and dealing with all of the music that it knows and all of the music that it has heard and you know somehow there's this kind of wild and unexplainable filtering process in which pieces of things that we've heard come together and then and are reformed in new ways mm-hmm. and our own particular musical personalities i think manifest themselves and so here even though i consciously had a sort of blank slate and was not relegated to doing something very specific for a very specific occasion still what ultimately emerges is music that reflects my own personalities and and my own personality or personalities perhaps Uh, and so when you know a fanfare emerges it wasn't that I said to myself okay we're we're heading for the fanfare at two minutes and 30 30 36 seconds no it's just that (laughs) that happened to emerge at that moment Uh, and of course we also we might want to talk about the fact that you know, we're hearing this in its completed, fully orchestrated form. But yeah. of course, when I'm composing, that's not the tr- that's not the case at all. We're actually just writing essentially piano material and finding musical relationships that work 
independent of the orchestration, and then the orchestration always comes later. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And that, um, but that that's a very organic part of the process. We have the luxury here of being able to sit and hear this recording with the amazing London Philharmonic Orchestra. You know, a very polished performance by a world class orchestra. But of course, it doesn't come out that way initially. It, it only begins as as piano notes, and then decisions have to be made about what the orchestration will be. Mm-hmm. Wow, that is. It's just. I, I love I love learning about people's creative processes and and how you know it comes from a simple kernel of something, a dude sitting in a room with a piano <laughs> basically, and then it turns into this amazing performance with these very skilled performers and this very polished sound that I I don't know I just I think that's fascinating. It, it so, is it is fairly miraculous you know and for me as an orchestral composer. I mean, ultimately, all I do is is put dots on pieces of paper that will be uh-huh. played by these astonishing musicians. I mean, they're my dots, and I've thought very <laughs> carefully about those dots. But still, they're only dots until yeah. until they're actually brought to life, which, of course, is is the is the most wonderful process. Yeah, um, that's, you can really hear that that American sound in in your in the symphony number no. one. And I, but I don't know what that means. And I know, like, <laughs> I, I know what, um, what when I hear it, I think, oh yeah, this is this is surely a piece by an American composer or somebody very influenced by American composers. But can you talk about why it is that that I think that, or why somebody else might think that? What's what, sure. what makes that, it know, particularly that, American? That's actually, you know, that's an extremely good question, and it's it's harder to answer than you might imagine. Um, <laughs> and it's funny that you say what you said because uh, I have a friend who is a uh, uh, British composer, and uh, he was visiting my studio and heard some of the piece in progress. I played him a, a demo of the scherzo dance, uh, and his first reaction was, and I, I have to do a bad British accent. He said, "Well, that could only have been written by an American." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and I took that as a great compliment, uh, and I think he meant it that way. So, uh, you know, you, you mentioned the second movement, the, the, as I refer to it, the scherzo dance, which I think is a somewhat interesting title for that second movement. And some of the answer to your question has to do with, I think, a certain approach to rhythm and to rhythmic organization. And um, and speaking of particularly of the second movement, there's a technique that uh, composers, certainly not only American composers by any means, but uh, but some American composers have used, which is referred to as as mixed meters, a mixed meter composition. Mm-hmm. And by that we mean uh, almost just as what it sounds, mixing up the the uh, metrical organization of the music, so that, for example, instead of a straight four four, a, a very common, perhaps the most common rhythmic organization, which is just one and two and three and four and one and two and three and four and mixed meters might do something like a seven eight, where you have a group of three and then a group of two. So one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. Or let's say five, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five. And these can be changed in in, in the uh, metrical organization, three plus two plus two for seven or two plus three plus two, etc. And this alone certainly does not make something sound American per se, but Bernstein in particular uh, was someone for whom using mixed meters in an interesting way was part of his vocabulary as a composer. Oh, and okay. this is something that interests me a great deal. And uh, I mean, since we're speaking of the second movement, I'll tell you in particular that the the typical kind of 
scherzo or a, or a fast uh, a fast joke. Scherzo literally means joke in Italian. Um, but if we think of a Beethoven scherzo, for example, in in those movements of his symphonies, uh, they tend to be in very fast groups of three. So one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, front. If we think of the seventh symphony, second movement, ba bum ba bum ba, third movement, ba bum ba bum ba pipa ba 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 pipa ba bum ya ba ba pipa ba 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 bum. We're hearing all of these groups of three times four, so we have twelve. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two. And in my piece in the scherzo dance, I altered that. I gave it a little bit of an extra push or oddity by actually making it thirteen. Mm-hmm. So instead of one two three one two three one two three one two three, mine is actually one two three one two three one two three one two one two one two three one two three one two three one two one two. It's off kilter in a certain way, and yet the larger phrases are still balanced because it still sounds dance like. But it's a little bit off kilter, and it's not something that the average listener might actually perceive. But mm-hmm. if you were to try to tap your finger to it, you wouldn't be able to tap your finger evenly. You wouldn't be able to tap. Instead, you'd have to do And that is one way in which the rhythmic structure is unusual and perhaps American. But that, but that, that's only one facet. That alone does not make something sound American. It has to do with a melodic approach. It has mm-hmm. to do with harmony. It has to do with orchestration. It has to do with a certain kind of attitude. And it, it's very difficult to actually put into words. But I think for me, having grown up listening to so much of this music by great American composers, uh, I don't have to try very hard to sound American. It's simply the way yeah. that the notes come out. So basically what you're saying is that what makes something American is a distinct unevenness and <laughs> it, it can it can be it can be it can be one aspect you know we think of the the candied overture Bernstein's candied overture as an example and the structure of that is is actually ba- one of the themes and that's actually it has this uneven quality to it. Uh-huh. And that's not the same rhythmic structure that I just described to you, but it's a Bernsteinian kind of structure, and yet he makes it sound so smooth. And that yeah. that that's that's part of it. And you know, we can find this in so many pieces, Copeland Appalachian Spring, for example, and mm-hmm. other sections. Um it's 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 one one aspect of uh, a very large kind of tapestry of ingredients that might make some, something sound American, but it's only one ingredient. That was a really, really great description of what makes something sound American. <laughs> that totally well, thank makes you very sense. Much. Um, well, let's move on to the scherzos. Can we just play a bit of it and, and you can sure. talk a bit about what's going on in it? All sure. So that's my attempt at a kind of arresting opening. And now what is happening here is a slow accumulation of layers. Mm-hmm. You can hear this rhythmic pattern, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, one, two. And what I'm doing here is basically starting from the bottom of the orchestra. There's a pulse in the percussion, mm-hmm. bringing in first celli, basses, bassoons, contrabassoons. Now you hear horns, clarinets, and each time we go through the phrases, I'm adding something. Now you hear the violins and the high woodwinds playing. All of this leading up to this moment here. 
And there's where we finally get the full theme in 13. Yeah. Second part of the theme. And then these little outbursts from the orchestra. Etc. And here you can really hear the structure again of the nine plus four, this little off kilter rhythm. Mm -hmm. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four. But yet the larger phrases are still hopefully dance like, and that's why I decided to call it scherzo dance. This music, this movement particularly, is so positive. <laughs> it's, very, it's very sort of uh, happy. It's it's certainly you know, it's certainly upbeat. Music. Yeah. Yeah, and and again, not uh, it was not in any way forced. It simply you know emerged this way. And here, you know, you can hear the size of the orchestra being employed. It's pre it's pretty large. Mm -hmm. Some very dissonant chords here in the full orchestra and leading up to a big climax. And then the second section, which we now lead into, is uh, I actually labeled it trio, and in a Beethoven symphony, for example, in which there is a scherzo, uh, a typical structure would be scherzo, trio, scherzo, what we call A, B, A. And so I followed that traditional form pretty closely. So this trio is related to the other material and yet it's different. The orchestration's different. And here you can hear oboe solo. So it's a new theme, but it is rhythmically in the same pattern as the, the scherzo music. Right, okay. I like that. I like. I like how you, you uh, tell me what that what we just heard was called again. Um, the trio, the trio the section. So it's okay. the it's the inner or middle section um, of the work, which which has a, a form of A B A. Yeah. So you can still hear that that theme in the slowed down, played in a different form. That's neat. So um, the third movement that yes. we're about to hear. When I set out to compose this work, uh, as I said, I didn't have any real preconceptions about what the material would be. Uh, mm -hmm. I also didn't even know initially how many movements the work would take. Uh, it's quite common for a symphony to have four movements. That's uh, certainly the most common organization of a symphony. And um, most classical symphonies had a four-movement form. But mm -hmm. certainly uh, in the 20th century, one found uh, many deviations from that pattern. And there are symphonies with more than four movements. There are symphonies with less than four movements. There are symphonies with even a single movement. Um, so in the 20th century, three-movement symphonies are not uh, not all that uncommon. And yeah. it turned out that ultimately this became a three-movement symphony. And I will tell you that initially I sketched a lot of material and actually had sketched uh, material for a fourth movement, which was, which was to have been a, a finale movement, a fast finale. And 
this uh, what became the third third and final movement, this adagio, was one of the the two things that I said to myself that I wanted to explore when I wrote the symphony. One was that I wanted to write some sort of a fast, energetic scherzo, and we've just seen how that ultimately uh, transpired. And then I knew that I wanted to write a slow, lyrical movement. And um, there are certainly many wonderful precedents of slow, lyrical movements uh, in symphonies. And as I worked on this third movement, the dimensions of it kept getting longer. And part of that is because the theme that I ultimately compose is a very long theme. In fact, it, it takes something like a minute and 15, minute and 20 seconds to play the whole theme, which is quite long. Yeah, um, yeah. One day I, I was improvising on this theme of the adagio and started to play this very fast moving accompaniment and yet with a slow beat because there were there were six notes per beat and so it was as an accompaniment and then playing this theme etc over it that I'd written and I realized that what was emerging was something that would actually suit a finale of the symphony very well something that would provide a very uh, powerful, I hoped, an affirmative ending, and also have a great deal of excitement, even though it was in a slow movement. And so I decided to explore that, and ultimately it seemed to work quite well, and, uh, and to serve as a suitable finale that hopefully provides both the opportunity to do this lyrical melody and this lyrical kind of writing, and to conclude in a big affirmative way. So all of that is the theme. And you can hear that so that's it's very long and leisurely. And now what unfolds is is a repetition and development of that theme, changing its orchestration, changing its accompaniment, etc. So in this next section that follows, again a kind of leisurely section, mm -hmm. there is a, a very simple repeated accompaniment motive. In this case, it's in the violins and the harp. And what I have done here is to give the theme to individual woodwinds. Here we hear the flute, and then changing the ending and having these little cascades down in each woodwind. And now it's given to clarinet. And again, bringing in instruments one at a time until the texture becomes busier and busier. And now mm -hmm. the theme is an oboe. And we hear this falling series of notes and now in the English horn. But every instrument that I've brought in is still playing and goes from playing the theme to playing accompaniment. Now flute and clarinet together and this slow building of energy and sound. And the horns enter and now multiple woodwinds are playing the theme and leading to a big statement in the brass, the horns and the trumpets. Climax, a high point, and then a dying away and subsiding of energy. It's all very leisurely, taking a lot of time. Mm So here, 
This is for harp and string orchestra. And here I divided the strings into many parts, actually nine parts in the string orchestra. And what you can hear here is a string quartet emerging out of the orchestra. And that quartet is playing the theme. And in addition to that quartet, the orchestra is also divided into five more parts. Like that. It's got a very different feel to it. Yes. It's, it's, it's more intimate with these solo strings. Mm -hmm. So you have the, the first violin player, second viola, cello. And the absolutely gorgeous playing of the strings of the London Philharmonic Orchestra. this gentle, lyrical, leisurely playing. Mm -hmm. There's a transition here, and a little figure is introduced. Ta -ta 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 -ta. And one by one, instruments come in playing this figure until it overtakes and becomes the main motive in the orchestra. And you can hear them all playing this, and then low brass and timpani on the bottom. And now comes in the theme in horns and strings. And you can hear these two things going on. There's fast motion in the woodwinds and the, the harp and the celeste playing these fast moving notes, but the main theme is still moving in this slow fashion and yet now in a very hopefully bold and affirmative way. The character has been changed. And this is the final section of the symphony. Just a couple of questions for you. We, you kind of touched on this a little bit, the the idea of the the symphony itself, it's a it's a little malleable in that yes. there used to be traditionally a certain number of movements and those movements were you know had certain themes themselves and and now in the twenty first century you've got this three movement symphony sort of born out of the inspiration that you've drawn from these American composers. So how useful is that term now? I guess, like, how useful is the term symphony? Can you define what a symphony is now? I mean, you, you talked at the beginning about how you really wanted to and were challenged by this idea of writing a symphony. So talk about yes. what that means. Sure. I mean, it's, it's an excellent question. What does the symphony mean in the early 21st century? Certainly, if one, I think, were to look at the repertoire that is performed regularly by orchestras uh, around the United States and around the world, one would find a great many symphonies of what we would call the standard repertoire that mm -hmm. uh, form a, a really core part of what orchestras perform. So clearly, it's an extremely important form historically that has 
stood the test of time and that uh, you know some of the greatest utterances in music in western music have in fact been symphonies by some of our greatest composers um, but what does it mean today what does it mean for composers living today there certainly uh, are symphonies written today and of course this is one and and that that alone shows that you know at least someone is composing a symphony but in fact there <laughs> there are quite a few uh you know there there are uh, i would say it's a relatively a relatively infrequent term compared to terms or titles other than the word symphony to describe orchestral music being written today. One is much more likely to find uh, a programmatic title, um, a, a particular title uh, of the whim of a composer that um, does not include the word symphony. And yet, you know, it, it does exist. And, and there are composers active today who uh, are composing them. It is, as you, you use the term malleable, and that's actually a very good term. I think it's a malleable form. When one says to oneself, okay, I, I am going to compose a symphony, mm -hmm. then it, it implies a great deal of history. It implies um, a, a distinguished tradition that, of course, has meant different things at different times. One would not really bat an eyelash at, at a composer saying, I've composed a one-movement symphony, or I've composed a seven-movement symphony, uh, and nor would one necessarily dispute it if, if those works sounded utterly different from one another. So <laughs> to, a, to a great extent, um, you know, we can't, I think one can't make predictions about what that term would mean today. And certainly there are many composers, I think, that would simply avoid it altogether, uh, because perhaps it, it, it either doesn't interest them per se, they'd rather just mm -hmm. write uh, or orchestral music of whatever kind, or don't necessarily wish to confront the sort of ghosts of the great symphonies that have gone before. And, and that's something right. that, yeah. that I thought about. I mean, you know, uh, if one simply says, okay, I have written a symphony, then immediately, like it or not, one will be compared to a great body of works, and one will inevitably uh, suffer by comparison if one is compared, you know, to to these great symphonies by Beethoven or Brahms or, or so many other composers. And yet, you know, I thought to myself that I I wanted to at least take a stab at it. I wanted to make an attempt at the form, and to see if it was something that I could do. So, in a sense, it it is a, a kind of threshold that one can cross as a composer under certain circumstances, and mm -hmm. uh, and you know. I, all I can say is I gave it my best shot. So this is essentially the composer version of a marathon for you. This was, <laughs> this was your like ultimate challenge. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the ultimate challenge would be like an evening like opera or something like that. So it's, uh, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> okay, I, I, gotcha. I try to I, I try to contextualize and say, OK, it's a 24 minute symphony. So yeah. it, it is of it is basically of medium length. It's of uh -huh. modest dimension. So uh, maybe we'll call it a mini marathon, something okay. like that. Okay, it's, it's like it's a half marathon. It, 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 yeah. took, it took some effort. Let's put it that way. It took some effort. <laughs> so uh, one, one final question before we go. Okay, so we've, you know, you're inspired by American composers. There's this very American sound, what you do. You yourself are an American. You've, you've dedicated this symphony to Leonard Bernstein. Okay, why then did you record with the London Philharmonic at Abbey Road Studio? I mean, you can't get more British than that. That is an excellent question. Um, <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. No, it's so cool that you recorded at Abbey Road Studio. It, it is, I mean, yeah, sure. Um, super British. I will, I will give my best attempt <laughs> at answering that question. So okay. it, ha it has to do with both uh, quality and economics, both of those uh, factors. There are multiple 
orchestras in London that are of world-class quality, that have very busy recording schedules, that are set up in the way that the orchestras are organized so that recording is a key part of their activity. And in a sense, they're, oh, user, they're huh. user-friendly, one could say that. And then there's also an economic dimension to it, which is probably not of great interest you know, in terms of a musical discussion, but just in terms of cost and, and being free of encumbrances for mm-hmm. future uses, um, it's very uh, user-friendly in that sense. Um, but those are the reasons <laughs> why, um, why this happened. And of course, I do have to say that, you know, Conducting the LPO at Abbey Road Studio One is about as good as it gets for a composer uh, and conductor. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's about as exciting as one can imagine, yep. uh, and certainly we'll look back at it as, as one of the most exciting days that I've had as a composer and conductor. Peter Boyer, thank you so much for being on the Classical Classroom today, all the way from Pasadena, California. It has been a great pleasure to have you on the show and I feel like I've learned a lot about the creative process that you know that that you've put into this symphony number one thank you so much Dish. it's really been a pleasure talking to you and, and I hope that your listeners will enjoy this and I hope we'll have a chance to speak again in the future I hope so too take care thank you That about does it for this episode of Classical Classroom. In case you aren't satiated and you want yet more classroom, just go to houstonpublicmedia.org backslash classroom where you will find links to all of the ways that you can listen to us and engage with us on social media, including, but not limited to, SoundCloud, iTunes, Twitter, and Tumblr. That's right. You can follow us on Twitter at ccshows. Send me an email at dclay at houstonpublicmedia.org if you have questions, concerns, or adorable photos of your pets to send me. Just a reminder to follow us, rate us, review us, like us, love us if possible, however you engage with us online. Thanks to Todd Twitchy Holslander for making us sound lovely today. Thanks to program director Sinjin Flynn for being so pumped about his scores from the thrift shop. Thanks to Peter Boyer for spending quality time with us today. Thanks to me for saying words. But above all, thanks to you listeners for listening. We'll catch you next time.